there's a different form of war that's upon us. The people who are waging virtual war and doing incredible damage in physical space are wearing civilian clothes, and it's not even close. We need a fourth army whose form, whose functions, whose logic and culture is not the army that exists today. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Colonel Retired Steve Bannock, Director of the Army Management Staff College. Colonel Bannock will be discussing what he calls global entanglement in multi-reality systems warfare, as well as new approaches to complex problems of war. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Sir, thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, I want to take a minute here and uh, just thank you for what it is Mad Scientist Initiative does. I think it's an incredibly important you know, learning instrument uh, for our Army. You know, th- thank you for having me, and I look forward to this session this morning. Well, thank you for coming on, sir. You've been a, a big part of what we've done and, and participate a lot in Army Mad Scientists in the past, and uh, happy to have you here today. So, you, you know, you've spent a majority of your life serving the nation. How'd you get here? How, how did you become uh, really a military thought leader? Well, you know, life's uh, largely about who you meet, when they meet them, and the impact that, uh, you know, people have on you. You know, I actually never intended to serve in the military, you know, service uh, to our country was something that I, I grew into and eventually uh, thought that I absolutely needed to do. You know, I was born in Jersey, raised in New York State during the Vietnam uh, War era. And, uh, you know, we had some relatives, you know, get wounded there uh, in that war. So that was kind of a, you know, a signal uh, maybe that we probably ought not go down that road. But ended, anyway, I ended up going out to the University of Iowa and, and uh, wrestling, wrestling for legendary coach Dan Gable. And again, he's one of these... Uh, uh, impactful people, uh, you know, that's an understatement. Uh, you know, the guy won 15 national titles in 23 years, you know, more than any collegiate coach. Uh, and I've never seen, you know, anybody do what he was able to do with human beings and in terms of getting uh, capability and production out of them and uh, just uh, the highest levels uh, of success. You know, the uh, the mental toughness, the physical uh, toughness uh, that I learned there, you know, those attributes uh, really helped me along the way in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and others. But, uh, you know, much of the success that I had in the service, I can, you know, probably attribute it some way to what uh, Dan taught us through those crucible experiences in the wrestling room. You know, uh, another guy who was really in, uh, instrumental in my development and uh, you know, that I'm indebted to is uh, Major General Casey Lore, Ken Lore. He's the father in the modern day Rangers. He stood first Ranger Battalion up in the early 70s. Uh, he was also a heavyweight national champion at the University of Iowa in 1956. But uh, he was my mentor, you know, from about uh, 1981 until uh, he retired uh, in the 87-88 time frame. You know, he he really, uh, you know, taught me how to be an officer, how to how to be a leader, how to take care of people. You know, I was fortunate, uh, you know, through him to start my career in the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, nine years in the, in the Ranger Regiment to include Ranger Battalion uh, Command and, you know, a number of things that I did there. 
you know, from an operational perspective and, and the theory praxis piece is really, really important. And, uh, you know, you know, I'd like to you know, talk a little bit about that um, here in a second, but I think it's really, really important uh, as, as, as we look at building strategic leaders uh, in the future, because that's what we need. The operational uh, you know, experience, the praxis to the theory, having that dialectic going back and forth, uh, you know, global experiences, educational experiences uh, is, is so incredibly important. And, uh, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough, uh, you know, at the end of my career, 20 years of my career were pretty much all operational with the exception of the normal PME assignments. But uh, my, my experience at, at, at the school for advanced military studies as a war college fellow colonel, after 20 years of operational experience, uh, deployments to six combat zones, I immersed myself in theory and was able to use the theory as a foil to make sense of what I, uh, you know, what I had been through uh, up to that point. Yeah, that's great. I think anybody who's had any kind of personal or professional successes can kind of always pinpoint, go back to those individuals who kind of helped them get there. Um, and I think you brought up two that were that were very impactful in your life. So let, let, let's talk about, I mean, you foreshadowed this a little bit uh, in your previous answer. You recently wrote a paper about total force design that approaches the issue with a very different paradigm than the current one focused on large-scale combat operations. So can you tell our audience and us a little bit about this concept? Yeah, so uh, there's there's a different form of war that's upon us. And again, I mean, you can go all the way back to, the, you know, you know Secretary Elia Root in 1899 to 1904, I mean, he probably said the same thing. Billy Mitchell probably said the same thing. Uh, I know we said the same thing and, you know, coming out of Vietnam, we need to be prepared to, you know, fight the next war. It's going to be a different war. We saw with 9-11, it was a different war. But, uh, you know, sense making uh, of the wars that you're in, framing and naming what you're experiencing, uh, you know, can be a challenge. And uh, so uh, in this uh, Elements of Total Force Design paper, you know, I, I look back uh, and really kind of focused on the operational art. In the expansion of the operational art beyond traditional large-scale combat operations in, in physical battle space maneuver. So, you know, first of all, you know, and, and again, this is a cultural thing, right? We all deal with it every day. What I'm going to say today, 99% of what I'm going to say today is not binary. And 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 by that, you know, it, it's this is we don't live in an either-or world. We're dealing our problem typology has shifted from technical problems, destroying tank armies to high-end complex adaptive problems where you have to be an either-and thinker. You've got to be a critical thinker. You've got to be able to hold multiple competing ideas in a conversation in balance and give yourself time to learn about the complexity that's confronted you. In terms of, you know, the operational art, uh, you know, I, I talk about Tlaib's book, uh, you know, Anti-Fragile, Things They Gain from Disorder. You know, one of the key things that we have to look at, you know, as an army and the DOD is, is uh how do we create an entity whose form, function, logic, and culture is capable of gaining strength from disorder? When you, when you look at the, you know, industry, you look at our army, our processes, our, our lives in general, everything's built for stability and continuity, you know, and, but that's not the world we live in. So we've got to uh, expand uh, the operational art and, uh, and try to develop organizations that gain strength uh, from disorder as we, uh, we move forward. You know, part of that is, and I put in this paper is uh, synthesizing various technologies, cyber, social media, artificial intelligence, machine learning, autonomous systems, robotics, uh, electronic warfare, signals, intelligence, nanotechnologies, and space operations into a theory of action. And this is where we've got to get the right people together, synthesize these capabilities into a theory of action, 
and then strategically maneuver them in a multi-spectrum technology palette. And it's a new form of maneuver that we haven't discovered, but it's right, it's there uh, in front of us. And uh, and it's something that we certainly can do. I I put in the paper that, uh, you know, that uh, the world is experiencing a revolution in human affairs. When I talk about a revolution in human affairs, I mean, it begins with this emergence of virtual capabilities that have has been weaponized, hence virtual war or combined arms, virtual battle space maneuver. And so when you look at, you know, who's conducting war today, the combatants have fundamentally changed. The people who are waging uh, virtual war and doing incredible damage in physical space are wearing civilian clothes, and it's not even close. So the combatants have changed. The battlefield has changed. It's our offices, our homes, all points in between. And the weaponry has changed. You don't have kinetic munitions going down and doing harm. You have weapons of mass deception that are prevailing in, in virtual battle space that are, are causing an incredible amount of harm in physical space. And, and we, see it, uh, we see it every single day. So one of the things I try to do is, you know, from a problem framing perspective, I mean, our propensity is to frame problems using nouns. Right. Example, China, Russia, North Korea and Iran. That really doesn't help you a lot. Right. So when we start looking at root problem framing uh, and, and framing verbs, you know, the way I'm, I'm conceptualizing the initial and I think the most important problem assemblage is that uh, global entanglement and ubiquitous systems warfare is producing a multi-reality security milieu that our DOD is not prepared to address from a whole host of reasons. I mean, we, we don't have a DOD that's built to operate in virtual battle space. That's a state operation. Of course, our adversaries know this. When you look at you know, Senge's you know, fifth discipline, how do we maintain personal mastery? We got to do it by adjusting our mental models. And what mental models are we considering to deal with global entanglement, ubiquitous systems warfare, and uh, multi-reality security milieu? We've got to change. It's the you know, combination of considering what Sun Tzu said, what Grezimov said, Saul Alinsky's, uh, you know, uh, rules for radicals, uh, you know, game theory. If you look at the South China Sea right now, I mean, that's a go board. And go is a, a Chinese game. It's about 2,500 years old. One of the goals, first goals in the game is to stake your territory out. All right. And you, you look at these artificial islands in the South China Sea, and it's a go board. You look at, uh, you know, five, 5G technology. What did they do? You know, going back 40 years, they staked out their terrain in STEM. And again, it goes back to the entanglement piece. They thoroughly infiltrated our STEM infrastructure, academia, you know, our tech industries, and they are, uh, you know, leveraging uh, everything they, uh, they can uh, to take control of that. So, you know, one of the things I put forward to, to address the complex problem there of global entanglement is uh, we need to design, you know, the corollary to what we have in physical battle space maneuver. So joint combined arms virtual battle space maneuver doctrine that's the corollary to our joint combined arms physical battle space maneuver doctrine if we could do that establish the virtual principles of war uh, like assured connectivity persistent surveillance systems warfare uh, virtual colonization and social control and then take it into virtual war fighting functions uh, that would be a uh, you know a good start and underpinning all that stuff is our ability to win the war of ideas and, and right now, uh, I'm doing it at the uh, uh, Army Management Staff College. I've hired five MDO SMEs. I'm hiring a sixth uh, here this month. But synthesizing uh, those technologies I just described from cyber to space and 
doing it in a manner where you identify the theory, the MDO theory, and you teach it in the civilian education system and in the professional military education system. Uh, that's all got to be resourced. And again, expanding the operational art means you've got to expand the range of theory that you need to understand to be able to win the wars that are in front of you. And just want to make a point here. This is not some distant war. You know, we deceive ourselves when we talk about these waypoints of 2028 and 2035. Make no mistake about it. We are at war today. Uh, you know, capital letters. All right. We are at war and we're at war and we don't realize it. We mirror image these Western mental models of great power competition, uh, you know, gray zone, uh, you know, competition to conflict. Our adversaries are at war. It's a different type of war. We don't see the war in many ways. And again, it's not binary. We've got to be able to win a Lisco fight with China or anybody else. But Lisco is our, our modern day marginal line. We are focusing so myopically and so biased to Lisco, like the French who focus so myopically on the marginal line that they missed the war that was upon them, all right? And they got crushed. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a history we don't want to repeat. So you got to win the war of ideas. You know, the thing that, that we've got to build out uh, and align is our operating system. Right now, joint and army organizations uh, only use process. That's what we're, we're building all of our understanding off of is, is process. We need a big data operating system, which will eventually become qu a quantum system that goes into a design sense-making system, operating system that feeds a new uh, process operating system. So if we don't expand our operating systems, you know, we, we, have, we have very little chance of processing and making sense of, of the big data that, uh, that is out there uh, that's waiting to be uh, synthesized, evaluated, and, and used. You know, and I think, as, you know, as we go forward here from a cultural standpoint, autonomous leadership enabled by big data is, is incredibly important. Uh, you know, our, our environment has changed, the technology's changed, but our, the power of the brain has not changed. Okay, so we've, we've got to have uh, some type of, uh, you know, synthetic uh, capability uh, that can, uh, you know, help a soldier uh, survive on, on today's battlefield, not in the future, and on today's battlefield, because we've got machines right now uh, that can make decisions faster than the human brain, and our soldiers can't think as fast as, as the machines. This isn't some distant threat. It's a threat, you know, for, for the here and now uh, today that we've got to get in the hands of our soldiers. And having said all that, I know we're making steps, but a lot of these steps that we're doing from a learning system standpoint, I'll talk about learning systems here in a second. Uh, from a learning system standpoint, we're, 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 we have siloed learning systems and we're not learning. We're not, we're not achieving uh, the analysis, synthesis, and evaluation across multiple enterprises. Uh, and again, this is where a design thinking culture can help you with that. And so we've got to harness uh, the corporate intellect, and it's just not the military. It's, it's, it, in, in this particular case, we have to reach out uh, into the private sector uh, to get the expertise. And, and in many cases, you know, we, we've, we've actually, from an army perspective, got to create a fourth army uh, that's, whose form, function, logics, and culture is, is, is fundamentally different. Uh, so the autonomous leadership and then the other, the other piece uh, that I would add here to that is the need for synthetic immunity. Uh, our soldiers cannot survive in plain view on today's battlefield. I mean, they'll get targeted, and 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 we have long-range weapon systems. The adversary has them uh, that can take a soldier out if they can be uh, sensed or, or detected. So, 
you know, biologically, uh, you know, there's, there, we have, we all have uh, three levels of, of immunity, synthetic, innate, and adaptive immunity layers. So again, going back to maneuvering in the technology palette, you know, how is it that we create multiple levels of immunity, uh, you know, immunity packages that we give soldiers to go into different AORs, uh, areas of operation where an adversary does a certain, uh, you know, a set of tactics, techniques, and procedures. You know, lastly, on, on, in terms of the paper, and we can dig into some of this a little bit more, is this notion of uh, asymmetric ethics. You know, when we look at asymmetric ethics, you know, I come at it from a couple different perspectives. We've got to establish zones of acceptability and limits of tolerance for activities that occur in, in virtual battle space that in turn necessitate reprisal in physical battle space with a kinetic response. That requires, you know, framing and further clarification. You know, our ability to strategically communicate these thresholds and why they exist uh, not only to the military, but to the American people, you know, as a result of, you know, national security reasons, we don't want the impact of, of an attack to get out. Uh, or, you know, on the corporate side, you know, they won't, don't want to demonstrate how much uh, loss they took from a market share perspective. You know, all of that is eroding, you know, the, the Klaus Wichian trinity. You know, you can't address the people with the truth. And I'm going to talk to you about multi-reality warfare here at some point. You can't address... Uh, the presentation of truth to the to the people, you know, for security reasons and, and financial loss reasons. Okay, so therefore you can't mobilize the people. The primordial violence, hatred, and enmity it is not there. The government is not forced to provide reason, and there's no way to deploy the military relative to chance and probability. So that whole model is collapsing right in front of our eyes. So you know, the other, the last point I would I would mention here on the paper is this notion of, of, of the, the learning system, right? And, and again, you, you can go all the way back to Sun Tzu. The learning system is the weapon system. And, you know, how we, have we reframed our learning system uh, to the point uh, that can give us a competitive advantage? And we just finished uh, 20 years of attrition warfare in Iraq. You know, I love the Army. I love our DOD in the country. But we probably got some work to do in terms of adjusting our learning system, right? Its form, its function, its logic, its culture big data design and, and process operating systems are part of it. There's a multitude of things that have got to go into uh, this learning system, expanding the range of theory, expanding the operational art, thinking about things in an unbiased way uh, to create you know, a knowledge funnel that has a pretty wide aperture uh, that allows uh, a multitude of opinions, uh, not just group think uh, to lead people uh, to uh, strategic choices. I, I think you bring up a, a lot of great points. First, I'd like to say that I think when you talk about the idea of these not, you know, we fool ourselves, right? And and we've experienced this a lot with MADSI, where we talk about things that are in the future operational environment or attributes we think will be there. Um, and you see kind of a, a little bit of dismissiveness uh, from from different audiences who say, okay, well, that that's out in the future. I have I have current day concerns to worry about. But I think you bring up a great point is that we deceive ourselves if we think of these things as just being in the future. That's that's our future army's problem, not ours. Um, and I think these threats are very real and facing us now. Um, and so there was uh, author uh, William Gibson said, 
that the future is here now. It's just not distributed very evenly. And so we're seeing kind of some of these things coming at us very quickly. So I think that was an excellent point. And then uh, I wanted to expand a little, and I think this is a new concept for a lot of our audience probably, and that one of the things you discussed that was just really intriguing was this idea of ongoing uh, global entanglement and multi-reality warfare challenge that the, the DOD is facing. Can you expand a little bit on what you mean by multi-reality warfare? Yeah, sure. And, and you know, and, and again, the entanglement piece is really important. The ubiquitous systems warfare piece is, is really important. So you think and I go back 40 years uh, to, to the Reagan administration. And, you know, I wrote a paper on this and, and, and talked about the need for a national technology-based strategy back in 2017. But Reagan actually did have a national technology-based strategy uh, that was meant uh, to interdict uh, the global entanglement, uh, you know, strategic maneuver that he saw coming out of China. And so uh, he stood up the uh, Socrates Project. A friend of mine ran it. Uh, and the Socrates project ran through the middle of, of the 80s and gave us many of the technologies that we used to, number one, to push the USSR off the superpower map uh, in 1989. And then tangentially, they were used in the 1991 Gulf War to destroy the fourth largest tank army in the world in 100 hours. Uh, so global entanglement really started achieving airspeed and altitude in, in the 80s after the Reagan administration. When, when Reagan left, the Socrates project went away and all the doors were open to our STEM technology uh, sector and uh, all of our systems. And when you think about, when you think about entanglement, uh, there's, a, there's a multitude of things we can talk about. I, but I, I want to talk about first. Uh, the first level here is is the avatars that are that are created for each of us. And again, this is personal for all of us. It, it begins with what my virtual principles of war uh, for entanglement and, and threat entanglement. And people are thinking this way because you you can you can see the maneuver if you're looking for it and you understand what's there. So the first piece to entanglement is assured connectivity. And that assured connectivity is through technology and a multitude of technologies uh, from, from Fitbits to computers to iPhones to on and on and on to retinal scans, uh, biometric scanning. Uh, you know, China's got their own software out right now that, you know, they grade their citizens on. They're, they're going to e-currency, uh, which, you know, in China, if whatever expenditure, and again, again, we have this with our credit cards and and, and other, uh, you know, devices that uh, digital devices, you know, digital currencies that, you know, we use. But all of that ensures assured connectivity with the populace. And then if they have the connectivity, then they have persistent surveillance. And then, they, they, you know, these, these threats, nation state and non-nation state actors can exploit every one of your systems because they have your data. And over time, it leads to virtual colonization in social control, assured connectivity, persistent surveillance, ubiquitous systems warfare. All of us, you know, have these avatars, be they cyber or social media, finance, healthcare, you know, or religion or politics. Now you think about, you know, robotics, you know, your car, uh, you buy a newer car, a, a new car today, all of your data is being fed into someone's database, your traffic pattern, all of this stuff is being mapped and collected. Uh, so if you, I mean, if you go to one of the larger tech companies and have them walk you around, uh, you, you'll see that they're collecting uh, information in every language on every continent and, and building up uh, these database, databases uh, that will allow them to have assured connectivity and the other things I, I just described. So 
that's the front end piece uh, on that. Moving from global entanglement and systems warfare, when you move into multi-reality warfare, you, you think about the, 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 the mechanisms that are out there to put information out on the street for people to see. And what we, what we see, and you know, from a theory standpoint, is there actually is the truth, right? The presentation of truth. And, and that presentation of truth is, is short-lived because it, it, it gets launched out into the world and it's distorted and manipulated uh, through the mainstream media, print media, social media, uh, you know, biases that, that people have. And so the presentation of the truth gets manipulated and it turns into a representation of truth, right? And the representation of truth comes in a multitude of frames based on the bias of the one who's putting the information out there. And the challenge that you have is that we go from presentation of truth to the representation of truth. And it's all about the perceptions and the biases that you have to say which, which of these uh, frames that I'm seeing is, is, in my mind, more of the truth. So in reality, day to day, we rarely ever deal with the truth uh, from a, from a you know, multimedia uh, perspective. And then, you know, that becomes a real problem, uh, you know, in terms of leader communication cycles and decision cycles. When a leader is seeing multiple frames that are saying different things, uh, I mean, that's going to make decision-making that much more difficult, okay? And uh, so it, it creates a multi-reality uh, conflict, cognitive conflict, and, you know, influences whether our decisions are successful or, or they fail. One of the things that, uh, uh, and, and again, this is genius, it's brilliant, but one of the things our adversaries are doing to us, and I mentioned the Clausewitzian Trinity a second ago with the people, the, the government and the military, uh, there are people that have launched uh, campaigns, in particular here in the last 18 months, that have put elites in crisis uh, and have put average human beings in, into work avoidance and into states of liminality and disequilibrium where they just want to quit watching, you know, much of what's going on in the world. The fundamental goal, right, in these campaigns is to deny the productive range of learning to the targeted population, right? You never allow uh, your targeted population to learn their way forward successfully to where they can take what it is that you're presenting and overcome it, okay? So, you know, part of our learning system has got to understand the threat strategy. Uh, and that's why, you know, I go back to expanding the operational art and the range of theory uh, that, uh, that we should be considering. And I'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, a, a, a threat schema that I've mapped, you know, four different lines of effort and a number of, of things. Uh, you know, the only place that, that, that I know that teaches the theory that's in that threat concept that I talk about is at the School for Advanced Military Studies. Uh, who does look at, uh, you know, uh, things like relational dialectics uh, theory, semiotic exploitation theory, liminality theory, all, all these types of, uh, you know, quote unquote, non-standard theories. But un until we can deconstruct the threat, all right, and open up the productive range of learning for our population, the civilian and military populations, we're going to continue to operate in, in a state of entropy uh, really that we've been in uh, since uh, the Gulf War coming out of that. We st it all started about 1992. 
I mean, we have really, really smart adversaries. They realize they can't beat us on a, on a tank battlefield. So they're going to go indirect and, in, you know, and in, in attack us inside out. And that's exactly what they're doing. Really, you deployed to six different combat zones over your career. So I want to kind of delve into your experiences there. Uh, what kind of challenges do you see as that have been persistent throughout all those deployments? And on the other side, what's, what's different now for soldiers and commanders? You know, personal mastery is always a challenge, right? It's always a challenge. I mean, every one of us, you know, over a career have to evolve uh, to maintain personal mastery. And when I say we have to evolve, we have to change our mental models. We got to think uh, in, in, in terms of uh, systems. I mean, that is the fifth discipline that Senge talks about. Uh, we've got we've to, uh, you know, think about, uh, you know, learning theory. And again, the, the learning system is the weapon system. So, you know, you know Bloom's learning taxonomy, uh, you know, do we understand how to take organizations from basic knowledge all the way up to synthesis and evaluation and thinking about complexity, uh, you know, different learning loops. In, in many cases, we're a single and in, in, in double loop learning entity in a triple loop learning world, okay? Uh, and that's, that's, that's our reality today. Uh, our adversaries, and what I'm talking about in this podcast, is these are new governing principles that exist outside the existing warfare paradigm. We're operating in the previous paradigm, the single loop learning, you know, the concern about doing things right, double loop learning, are we doing the right things? That's all in the, in, in the past paradigm. Uh, China and, and a number of uh, non-state actors have developed new governing principles for warfare. Uh, you know, I'll use Senge's fifth discipline there about personal mastery, mental model adjustment, you know, understanding learning theory, thinking in, in systems and, and creating, uh, you know, iterative shared vision uh, over time. You know, tied to that, the real challenge is this notion of the diffusion of innovation. You know, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, Ev Rogers, you know, model for the diffusion of innovation, I mean, he's got 2.5 of us that are innovators, right? 13.5 of us are like the early adopters. So you got 16% of people who, you know, dial in and get it, all right? That leaves you 84% of the people, all right, that over some period of time have varying degrees of, of, of willingness to embrace new thinking, okay? And I will tell you, you know, going back to, you know, Moore's law here, what Ev Rogers puts out in the diffusion of innovation, that framework is unsustainable going forward. We cannot move and diffuse innovation at, at that pace and expect to be successful. We will fundamentally fail. In many ways, you know, I go back and juxtapose, you know, the French experience in, in 1919 to 1939 with what we're going through right now. And you, th you think about the, the parallels here. You know, the French spent more money between 1999 and 1939 preparing for the next world war, which, which we know they lost their piece of it. Okay. We're doing similar things. We're spending more money than all of our allies combined, you know, actually the, you know, the top 10 combined, uh, and we're preparing in many ways for the last war. And I, and again, I, I, I base that on the, the dollar percentages that we're spending on kinetic munitions versus what we're spending in, in combined arms, virtual battle space maneuver. And it's not even close. You know, we have history there to, to help us and to, to see how, how we need to adapt. You know, the, the, you know, the challenge is, uh, you know, will we adapt? And, you know, some of the, some of the things to consider, think about the, the army in 1931. We, we were a horse cavalry army, okay? And, and again, I'm, I, I am going to go back to these 2028 and 2035 models because 
we're sitting here in 2021 and you, you go out to a, you know, being, you know, MDO capable in, in 2035. Okay. So that's a 14 year period, just like uh, 1931 to 19, uh, you know, 45 was. So historically we went from horse cavalry to nuclear weapons in a 14 year period. Okay. What does the U S military 2021 look like in 2035? Okay. You know, we've got what we've got. What does our formation look like? I, I tell you what it doesn't look like. You know, and again, you go back to the, the, the proliferation of, of uh, robotics and you combine that with lethality, the synthetic immunity, the autonomous leadership, the big data that's required. And we've got to reframe our doctrine. You know, we're going to we're going to be leading again in this multi-spectrum uh, you know, technology palette, setting the conditions in virtual space. At, at multiple levels, then leading, you know, with unmanned systems, then leading with robots with a couple of human beings that can be sensed and tracked uh, and destroyed. So our whole doctrinal process has got to be rewritten for this army that we need to have. You know, we actually, we need it today because those capabilities exist today. So, you know, what we're conceptualizing, you know, here over the, over the next 14 years takes a different way of learning. And that's a key point to your question is we've, we've got to fundamentally reframe our learning system, all right? And I said it before, the learning system is the weapon system. You fail to adapt your learning system. And right now, the industrial age processes that we're using are literally collapsing under the weight of the complexity, all right? They were built to deal with technical problems, task conditions, standards, things that we knew how to do. And we have processes to be uh, you know, efficient and things like that. And again, it's not, it's not binary. We need process, all right? But we also we also need these other two operating systems, the big data and design thinking for sense making. And then we need to create new processes to support those new mental models. You know, sir, one of, some of the things you talked about was the need for us to update our learning systems and our approach. Uh, and I think we're in for a very different and a very challenging fight in the future uh, compared to, as you discussed, you know, kind of us fighting the last war. Uh, which we're very prepared for. How does the army posture itself to be a force capable of of competing and winning in that kind of challenging and complex future? Well, I think I, I think that you know the next progression you know in this is you got you've got to understand what's happened to you. And I'll, I'll use uh, you know systems theory and, and and talk to you a little bit about this this notion of phase transitions. All right. So when, when you go back uh, to the, the last war we won, you know, World War II, you walk it forward to the Gulf War in 1991. And I'm going to use the ice, water, vapor, gas metaphor here. But in the Gulf War in 1991, the tank on tank warfare was the solid ice type kind of construct warfare. You, you understood who your adversary was. They had a, a uniform on. They were they were in a tank. Uh, man, you had kinetic munitions, you know, flying both ways. Battlefield was clearly defined, open desert. This is where we fight the war uh, and those kind of things. All right. And again, we have really, really smart nation state and non-nation state actors. They went to school on 1991. 2003, we expected to fight what we did in 1991. I, I fought in both of those wars. I, I was in, involved in the planning, in the lead up, you know, in, in both of those wars. And they looked eerily sim similar. Uh, to what we what we did uh, in, initially in 1991. Uh, so in 2003, 
you know, uh, for about the first, uh, you know, two to three days, uh, we were fighting that ice conflict. And then we had a transition. We had a transition to what, you know, uh, you know, eventually became an all out coin battle, uh, you know, that we fought for, for a number of years, you know, 2011 is, is basically when that coin operation was under control. So we went from ice, you know, tank warfare to, you know, a coin, a water liquid type construct where, and from my perspective out on Haditha Dam, all the Iraqi uniforms went away about nine April. You know, at that point, we didn't understand who was the enemy uh, unless they were shooting at us. We didn't see, you know, tanks anymore. We saw vehicle borne improvised uh, explosive devices that, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, actually killed three of my Rangers and wounded two others. Uh, we saw suicide, individual suicide bombers figured us out and understood, you know, kind of where the soft underbelly was, rule of law, law of land warfare, just war theory, all the, all the things that, you know, we br- we bring into battles, they started attacking, all right? As a commander, you're trying to do the right thing. All those things uh, hung in the balance as as you tried to complete the mission and, and bring your soldiers home safely. So we, we had a transition from 91 uh, to 92. We've experienced another transition from ice to water to this notion of vapor and gas, which I call virtual war. You know the vapor and gas is there. Sometimes the gas is hot. Sometimes, you know, you can see the vapor. You know it's there, but you can't box it up. You can't touch it. It's intangible. Uh, but you can you can definitely see the effects that this has. You know, in the, in the effects it's having, as I mentioned, is there's global systems warfare going on. And any system uh, that is that is nipper has been hacked or will be hacked. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Uh, you know, the threat goal is is systems destruction, creating systemic shock and, and systemic paralysis. OK, uh, so, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, the, this war that is before us, you know, and again, we've kind of highlighted, you know, is is Lisco still the preeminent uh, thing that we've got to uh, focus on? You know, is is there a need to do LISCO operations? You know, you know, at at the moment. My point on all that is, you've got to be able to win the tank war. You got to be able to win the coin fight, and most importantly, you've got to be able to to conduct combined arms virtual battle space maneuver to control the virtual terrain, which is the decisive terrain in the decisive operation. And that right, what I just said right there, is not embraced by many people. That entity, that dynamic, that phenomenon exists. It's real. We see the effects, you know, every single day. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure why, you know, we're having such a different, uh, difficult time uh, embracing that, that idea. But again, it brings me back uh, to this notion of the fourth army that we need. You know, in, in you know, 1775, we had the citizen soldier, you know, that changed, uh, you know, for about two, 200 years, we had a, you know, conscript army. Uh, and then, as you know, in 1973, we went uh, to the all-volunteer force, and I would offer, based on you know Moore's law and you know exponential uh, you know technological change in the singularity that Kurzweil and Werner Vinge kind of talk about, we we need a fourth army. Uh, we need we need to create this fourth army whose form, whose functions, whose logic and culture is not the army that exists today. All right, you know, question is. Do we understand the type of war we're in and can we build that army fast enough, do enough of the right things fast enough to be able to expand the operational art, maneuver using, you know, a strategy palette and, and this, this technology palette 
as new learning instruments uh, to bring us to the to where we need to uh, be today. And that is, you know, to design a joint combined arms, you know, virtual battle space maneuver schema. That's the corollary to what we do in in physical battle space. Well, so, so out, throughout this episode, you've you've done a really comprehensive job of kind of analyzing the past, the present, and the future. Uh, of, of conflict and then framing it around this idea of global entanglement and multi-reality systems warfare. But what else are we missing? What else are the, the Army and the DOD not thinking enough about or not paying enough attention to? One of the shortfalls we have is, is our understanding of problem theory. Uh, you know, culturally, we talk about solving, you know, quote unquote, the problem. Uh, that's not the world we live in today. Uh, we live in a, a, a highly dynamic uh, world that has systems of complex adaptive problems uh, that require an equally complex uh, system of solutions that, that are constantly evolving. As the system of problems changes, the system of solutions changes, your learning systems change, your mapping of your range of futures change, et cetera, et cetera. So, as long as we embrace, you know, technical problem solving, which is what we're, we're doing right now relative to LISCO, we're focusing on technical problem solving and, and we're not creating, you know, uh, uh, again, the, the capacity to embrace how do we solve technical adaptive and complex adaptive problems? You know, that's, that's the starting point for success. So you can't frame the problem situation that you're in. Uh, you're you're going to be hard pressed to actually deliver the solution uh, that, uh, that you need. So, uh, I go. I go back to what I said earlier. Uh, you got to win the war of ideas. You got to expand the competitive space, the operational art, and the range of theory that uh, we teach it uh, in the civilian education system and PME. You got to, you know, design this uh, joint virtual battle space maneuver schema that I keep talking about. I mentioned a couple different times. We've got, uh, you know, to develop these uh, uh, operating systems. At the end of the day, you got to you got to design the future. The future is not going to happen by itself. I mean, you, you can you can try to be Nostradamus and predict the future, but that doesn't work really well. Uh, you've got to design the future that you want. Bring a team of subject matter experts in to, that that forms your base design team that can develop a design concept for you. And then, as you learn your way forward through a design construct, uh, bring in different subject matter experts to fuel your learning system to help you achieve the, the goal that you need to achieve. If we were to create a big data operating system that uh, included cyber SME, social media, AI, ML, robotics, EW, SIGINT, nanospace, uh, subject matter experts as your base design team, we had a chief technology officer, we had a chief data officer, and we had a chief information officer in that operating system and we put we put that that organization in, in every brigade combat team, uh, and then we coupled it, you know, from a, a Venn diagram standpoint, uh, with a a design operating system for sense making and non predictive decision making. When I say that, predictive decision making is decision making that we have familiar patterns for that thing that that problem that's confronted confronting of us, and we can we can put a like past uh, solution. Uh, on that familiar problem situation. Non-predictive decision-making resides in a design thinking space where we don't have the previous patterns as a leader uh, to say, yeah, go do the X, Y, and Z. So you got to create the space uh, for ideation and for different inputs uh, for sense-making and non-predictive decision-making, thinking in systems. But, you know, in the, running that design system, 
operating system two would be a chief design officer. All right. So uh, you have the big data officers, you have a chief design officer, and then you'd have a chief process officer. Uh, you know, in every brigade combat team, you'd build this out. Uh, I've seen this done uh, at the battalion and brigade level by in incredible leaders. All right. But again, I go back to uh, Ev Rogers diffusion of innovation. You know, I can count the number of leaders who are actually able to conceptualize and do what, I what, I'm, what I'm talking about on one hand. All right. But, they, you know, they did it in combat and they were incredibly successful. We've got to posture ourselves with, with the right operating systems. We got to posture ourselves with the right doctrinal models. We have physical battle space warfighting functions. We know what they are. We need virtual battle space warfighting functions. We have physical uh, principles of war. We need virtual principles of war. We've got to synthesize those technologies that I talked about into a theory of action that can combat the global entanglement and multi-reality warfare that, that we're talking about. You know, developing organizations that are anti-fragile, that, that can gain from disorder is, is really important. And I've talked about the synthetic immunity, autonomous leadership, uh, and the asymmetric ethics piece. Uh, from a learning theory standpoint, we have got to become a triple loop learning entity that is, is creating new paradigm, new governing principles for warfare outside of our time uh, if we expect to, uh, to compete. Sure, I think that's really interesting and in terms of how we have to approach it and start to change the overall paradigm and not just, hey, let's, let's grab the newest materiel technology. Um, it's a completely different adaptive approach to how we learn and how we integrate those lessons into how we fight into the future. Um, pivoting just a little though, you know, we're, we're a podcast focused on the future. And so really the future soldiers, leaders, uh, and other potential national security professionals, uh, there are a lot of times right now, kids in high school and middle school and, and kids who are even uh, matinized kids age in elementary school. So what advice would you give them? Why would they want to work in this field and why would they want to serve uh, the country? First of all, we have the greatest you know, country uh, in the world and it's worth defending. I mean, the only reason why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing right now uh, with the passion I've got behind it is because I have uh, three grandchildren that are going to grow up in this world. And I spent 40 years as a security practitioner. We get paid to see, uh, you know, the changing trends in the global security milieu, right? Uh, I mean, that's what we get paid to do. And so framing and naming what's happening is, is really, really important. And uh, so I think the country, the Constitution, the freedoms we enjoy, I mean, we, we've been all around the world and we've seen the poverty, uh, you know, we've, we've seen countries run by uh, despots, you know, uh, we, we've seen horrific things that happen to other populations, other cultures, and you know, I don't want that for my country, but we have got to act. This is not a normal science threat. This is real. It's happening every day. It's pervasive. It's gaining strength uh, and access. Yeah, you know, do we have a lot of capability? Yes, but I'm deeply concerned. And again, this is all Nipper. This is all open source. When you look at where our country was in 2019 and what's happened just in the last two years, that, that gives you, you know, pause for concern. Nobody ever told me this, but as a young person, you know, coach and mentor people to develop a strategic leadership acumen. I don't, I don't know that we do enough of that. I would, tell, I would tell a young person uh, to immerse themselves in the broadest range of theory uh, that they could study. Even if they were uncomfortable studying it, I would tell them to study it. 
the difference in what you read and what you study and what you understand really does matter. And if you read the book range, they talk about that. One of the things that, you know, I never did as a military officer, again, because I wasn't coach and mentored this way. I was put on an operational track and just, you know, basically uh, on autopilot through my experiences in the ASEC and the Rangers and all these other assignments. If you do join the Army or whatever you do, even in the private sector, travel, get OCONUS experiences, both operational and educational experiences. You know, I sent our children abroad for, you know, short stints to learn different cultures, learn from different academic institutions, how they teach uh, and what they teach. You know, the other thing I just say, you know, is these young kids got to understand they're not alone. This is the first generation of babies that are being born that have they have, they have no choice in, in the decision-making process of the pictures that are taking and are hung on these inter- internet sites and things like that, and the retinal scans, the biometric scanning. And again, I go back to the assured connectivity and the persistent surveillance, the data collection, and, and how all that can be exploited on down the line. I mean, these are all, uh, we all have virtual avatars. We all have these virtual signatures, uh, and, th- and this population is literally being born into it. Yeah, you know that's how I'd I'd answer that question. It's uh, you know, country's worth fighting for. Service to our country is easily the most gratifying thing I've ever done in my life. I think that's very very well said. Um, you know, it's great to end the the deep set of questions with sort of a call to action, and to echo again how important it is to be, you know, a well rounded person if you want to be able to discuss something, if you want to be able to make decisions about things, even things you disagree with, you need to understand them it's important to do so because you can't analyze them. You can't make decisions based around them. You can't discuss them uh, in any meaningful way unless you understand them. So um, I, I think that was a great way to wrap up these these deeper questions so we can transition now into our, our quick fire, our rapid fire questions. Um, these are questions we ask every guest. They're always the same. Uh, we'll ask a quick question, give a quick response back, and we'll see where it takes us. So the first question, sir, is going to be what technology or trend keeps you up at night? We talked about uh, this this notion of virtual war, and uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I'd, I'd like to just briefly share what I think uh, the the adversary is doing relative to his her lines of effort. Uh, you know, I think their goal is to fundamentally control virtual battle space through uh, our technology structures, the capabilities, the flow of data, and controlling the time and timing for when things you know go out into into the world. And again, this does concern me. You know, I think the second thing that they try to do is uh, control the perception of truth. Uh, they understand our systems and how we think. They understand how we learn, how we, how we make decisions, how we communicate. And they understand our laws. They understand the Constitution and are exploiting all that. The other thing that they're doing is this notion of, of social creation, you know, cancel cultures, uh, you know, a part of it. And, and, and again, they achieve it through technological entanglements, societal entanglement. And this notion of relational, relational dialectics where they're able to drive wedges uh, into our society to divide our society, to split our society, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, politics, uh, race, religion, economics, uh, you know, status. They're able to uh, deploy Russian relational dialectics, uh, you know, theorists. Uh, and again, it's uh, no surprise that the Russians are using that on us. And it's coupled with semiotic exploitation, which is the, the exploitation of our signs and symbols. When, when you run this line of effort, this social creation line of effort, the end state is it produces a state of liminality where people are in a state of disequilibrium. They don't know what to do. 
you know, the last thing is, is there's an all out line of effort on governance, uh, governing, uh, you know, pop targeted populations. Uh, and I've mentioned this before through assured connectivity, you know, persistent surveillance, the systems warfare, the virtual colonization, you read the book nudge, you can, you can get a good, you know, good insight on, on the virtual colonization piece all into the, uh, into the social control, uh, you know, elements, those types of things concern me. You know, Kurzweil talked about, you know, the singularity. Uh, we're pre-singularity right now. If you look at our, uh, our industrial age uh, indices, many of them are collapsing. We're moving, you know, closer and closer to the singularity. Uh, I'm not sure we're doing enough of the right things, and especially when you have countries like Russia and China are not constrained ethically for the fusion of biological and machine intelligence. Uh, you know, how do, how do we handle uh, those types of adversaries that are confronting, you know, our soldiers? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the, the points you made there about, uh, you know, the, the virtual war is that we sometimes think that, you know, what's happening on the Internet, it's sort of like the wild, wild west. Uh, you know, everybody's out there. It's just kind of random. But really, I think we forget just how directed and targeted some of the things that are happening actually are. There There is a will behind a lot of what's going on. A lot of it is not just random. Yeah. So, and again, I've written five articles on, on this concept of virtual war. So, you know, when, when you look at, you know, kind, kind of what, what is it, you know, it's just, it is a global systems approach, you know, designed to, you know, virtually colonize and social control targeted populations. And again, the purpose is for profit positional advantage, or in, in cases we're seeing today to, to literally, you know, cancel people. And when I, when I say that it's, some of this is lethal. The cancellation produces lethal effects. You know, you, you've seen, uh, you know, going back to 9-11, you know, the buildup to all that, the knowledge creation was all done in virtual space. And all of that that was done globally in virtual space was manifested with the planes hitting the buildings and landing in the field in Pennsylvania. But you, you also see it going the other way where something, you know, uh, the Arab Spring was the other example of this, uh, where something happens in physical space and then, you know, gets transmitted into virtual space. And, and goes viral and causes 61,000 people to get killed during that uh, that time frame. So, I mean, this is a real thing that we don't understand uh, the power uh, behind it. And, you know, that's that's definitely one thing that I'm concerned about that we're not postured for. I don't think we're doing enough of the right things fast enough relative to, you know, what I'm seeing in the, in the global ecosystem right now. Uh, our next question kind of gives us a little insight into the lives of our guests. So what, what's something about you that most people might not know? Well, you're going to probably you know, laugh at this or whatever, but I, I really abhor conflict. You know, the irony is, and maybe that's kind of what keeps pushing me. I don't know. You know, you go back to the introduction, right? You wrestle for Dan Gable, the best institution, you know, uh, in the NCAA for wrestling. Uh, so you wrestle for for the icon, incredible conflict there. I mean, just control fistfights every single day in the wrestling room. And then you couple that with 40 years of service, uh, you know, in and out of the military, but generally aligned with national defense. And so, uh, you know, I, I really don't like uh, conflict. I, I try to mitigate conflict as much as I can. And maybe that's what I'm doing right now. None of us have all the answers, right? I certainly don't. But we got to bring enough of the right people together using a design kind of culture and construct to get enough of the right people in the rooms, you know, enough time to where we can build these solutions that we need and then continue to design our way forward in a campaign of learning and action. I really appreciate you bringing that up, sir, because I think sometimes there's this idea that um, those of us who study warfare, who, who are practitioners, who 
you know, really explore the future of warfare or even the present, as we talked about right now, threats, you know, we we kind of have this label sometimes as warmongers or something or um, seeking out this conflict or inflating threats. And I think the truth is, uh, is that we understand the devastation that can occur and uh, what what conflict can bring to us in a, in a very negative way. And so I think what we're trying to do is prepare our nation uh, for the best possible outcome and hopefully never have to get to that point. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, my first uh, combat experience, uh, my wife would tell you, you know, I was a different person. You know, the loved ones who understand who you were before you went and when you come back, they would tell you that most of us changed. War is the absolute and complete failure of mankind. You know, truth is always the first casualty, both in, in the ramp up to go there uh, and then, uh, you know, during its, you know, its execution. You see it for the first time. You never want anybody else to experience it. I think that's very well put by both of you. I don't think there's anything else uh, that I could add to that. Um, so so let's roll right into our, our final question here, sir. Uh, what's your favorite movie? You know, I tell you, I, uh, I read the trilogy uh, when I was in high school, you know, The Hobbit and, and, you know, The Lord of the Rings. You know, I haven't had a whole lot of time to watch that, but, uh, you know, I'll sit down I'll you know with my kids and I'll, I'll, I'll binge watch all those uh, you know, love love the idea. Uh, of, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien who was a genius uh, be, behind it. Uh, you know, the aspirations uh, that are you know thematically embedded in in what he did. I think what I like most about it is the is the is the notion of hope that is in each one of the the, the films that's uh, been created for that uh, for that particular trilogy. Yeah, but Lord of the Rings is uh, is uh, is something I, I I like to spend some you know, time watching periodically. Yeah, that's great. A uh, huge fan uh, of those films. Um, like you said, you have to have a whole lot of time if you want to watch yeah. them, uh, especially the extended editions, oh, yeah. uh, but but a masterpiece of a trilogy. So that that's, that's wonderful. That's an awesome answer. Before we head out of here, is there anything else you'd like to say to our audience? Anything else that you didn't get through that you, you kind of want to say or where people can follow your work, anything like that? Well, you know, we, we uh, you know, just have to Google my name and, and uh, you know, the articles will be there. I've done five. This is the sixth podcast that, uh, I mean, it's an element, a total force design kind of podcast, but it's, you know, largely about virtual war and, and, and that kind of thing. So there's, po- I mean, there's podcasts out there. I've done two other podcasts that for the Army Management Staff College that address uh, like ideas, but different. And we're going to, we're going to publish with this multi-domain operations team that I, I pulled together. Uh, we're going to publish articles. The intent is to develop multi-domain operations curriculum in parallel, develop uh, multi-domain operations, knowledge, skills, behaviors, and preferences that our civilian core needs. And then, of course, we're going to hand it off uh, to the PME practitioners uh, once once we build the initial set of courseware. I mean, winning the war of ideas, I mean, you got to have curriculum. Yeah, you, you got to identify the theory, build a curriculum, POI. And, and get it in the hands of the practitioners. You know, that's the mission that's, a, you know, that is in front of us. Right now, I'm, at the, I'm the director of the Army Management Staff College. Uh, so if you can go to their website, you can, you can see, uh, you know, and again, it's just not my podcast. There's a number of great leadership podcasts uh, out there uh, that uh, our team puts together. That's awesome, sir. We really appreciate you coming on our podcast today uh, and talking to our audience about what, what is honestly some very important topics some very timely topics. Um, some topics that we need to get people talking about and getting senior leaders talking about and discussing. Uh, so once again, sir, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you uh, for uh, Matt and, and Luke for what you do. Uh, as I mentioned up front, 
We need more uh, learning systems like this, not fewer. And again, when you're dealing with complex adaptive challenges like we are, we've got to expand the learning system, you know, deconstruct uh, some of the old mental models and, and, and look at different ways that we can learn. And you guys are doing it as well, uh, if not better than anybody else that, you know, that I've seen. So thank you for, uh, for having me today. Appreciate you coming on, sir. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Colonel Retired Steve Bannock, Director of the Army Management Staff College. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or a review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.